This is SCOTUS Talk, a nonpartisan podcast about the Supreme Court for lawyers and non-lawyers alike, brought to you by SCOTUS Blog. Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. Thanks for joining us. The Supreme Court is now in its summer recess. One tradition that follows the final rush of opinions before the justices' summer vacation is the release of statistics, chronicling every aspect of the term. But this term, some court watchers have argued that most statistical rundowns of the term don't fully capture the zeitgeist of the term. Lies, damn lies, and statistics. Joining us to talk about this is Steve Vladek. He's the Charles Allen Wright Chair in federal courts at the University of Texas Law School and a legal analyst for CNN. Steve, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Amy. My, my, my college math uh, advisor is going to be so happy that I'm actually doing a statistics interview. I think this is, this is great. <laughs> All right. Fantastic. Well, we'll, we'll be sure to uh, email it to him or, or add him <laughs> when we tweet it out. Hi, uh, Professor so, Starr. <laughs> before we get into the statistics, um, I want to sort of provide a little background for some of our listeners who may not be as steeped in in the statistics as we are. Um, if you could talk about something that we've talked on the podcast before, we talk about on the blog all the time, but just to make sure we're all on the same page, what is the shadow docket? As, as, as nefarious as it sounds. <laughs> we, we really need theme music for it. Um, exactly, like the Jaws music or something. Seriously. So, so the, the, the term is new, the docket is not, right? So um, Will Bowe from the University of Chicago coined the term in 2015 um, to refer to something that the Supreme Court has had literally since the first date existed, which is an order list um, that you know not everything the Supreme Court does is these fancy schmancy you know, 75 page opinions that are handed down, you know, over the course of the year, but with a lot in June that make these big splashy front page headlines. Um, a lot of the Supreme Court's work, indeed by volume, the overwhelming majority of the Supreme Court's work is unsigned orders. Um, most of those are anodyne. And so, you know, we don't really care, but I think the, the phenomenon that Will was, I think the first to really put his finger on, but that's really come into uh, for, for lack of stretching the metaphor, light um, in the last couple of years, is that the court is doing more and more stuff that is not anodyne um, on the shadow docket, that more and more of these orders are actually having pretty significant effects well beyond individual cases, um, and that therefore, the, you know, by both volume and significance, these orders are an increasingly relevant part of any story of the Supreme Court's term, um, which has raised, I think, Amy, as you know, as well as literally anyone, some pretty complicated questions um, about how you know, folks should be factoring in this part of the court's work into any overall assessment of it, especially because the, the denominator is so big. I mean, there are literally you know, 10,000 orders, if not more, each term, and we really only care about such a small, small slice of them. Okay, so yeah, we're going to get to that 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 last sort of couple of sentences in a couple of minutes. So, when did you really start to focus on the shadow docket, and why? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I've I've always been interested in some of the arcana of Supreme Court procedure. Um, so, Amy, you probably remember in the early 2010s there was a whole flood of of sort of interest and discussion in the Supreme Court's original habeas jurisdiction, um, and sort of the weird way that the Supreme Court can sometimes issue habeas relief directly. Um, that led me to sort of look at other things the Supreme Court does outside the stream 
of of the merits docket. And you know, right around the time that Will wrote his his piece that really started, I think, crystallizing the conversation, you know, I had started to notice a bit of an uptick in orders from the Supreme Court that were really having larger effects than traditionally was traditionally true. Um, you probably remember the Wheaton College case from 2014, um, Little Sisters of the Poor before it was a merits case. Um, and then what really I think got me going was the, the early travel ban cases during the Trump administration. Um, because you know we really saw the, the first the acting Solicitor General and the Solicitor General um, take a very aggressive position toward getting the Supreme Court to put these you know, nationwide injunctions on hold pending the course of this litigation that we hadn't seen before, um, right? That we, we, really, we really hadn't seen such an aggressive attempt by the federal government. The federal government had sought emergency relief before, but never in such a high profile divisive context. Um, and, you know, although most of us remember the last Supreme Court travel ban ruling, it's actually the first one um, in June 2017 that really piqued my curiosity because that's when, you know, the court sort of granted the stay in part, denied the stay in part. And then there was a ton of litigation over the summer about oh, yeah. just, right, about just how, <laughs> how broad that stay was. Um, and you know, this really, I think for a lot of people, Amy kicked off a renewed focus on the shadow docket. And at least from some litigants perspective, um, renewed efforts to utilize the shadow docket. And so that's when I started sort of tracking loosely how many of these cases there were. Um, and it was a fortuitous time because that's when there's this dramatic uptick, um, really starting in the summer of 2017 and continuously since then. Okay, so yeah, so let's return to the coverage of the 2020-2021 term and the statistics. So it seems like and and I, I don't mean to put words in your mouth or the, into the mouth of other people who were talking about statistics. It seems like there were sort of two main sets of sort of responses, arguments, criticisms, whatever. You know, one is that the statistics don't fully account for the quantitative side. You know, you, you look at unanimous opinions and some opinions and that sort of the paradigmatic opinion is the maybe Fulton versus Philadelphia are unanimous, but still significant opinions in the sense that they you know, still move the law to the right, even if the liberal justices are on board. And then the other, you know, is, is deals with the shadow docket in the sense that the statistics don't account or don't fully account for the shadow docket and you have you know i think it was maybe 10 opinions and i, I should stop you know we're, we're so used to after all of these years you know dating back basically the entire time that i've been covering the court of thinking about the polarized court as a 5-4 court but 6-3 is now the new 5-4 um, and so when you're talking about the polarized court being a 6-3 court there were i think 10 6-3 merits decisions at the court this term, but at, but as you've chronicled, there were quite a few more on the shadow docket. Yeah, I mean, so I, I think it's worth picking apart both of those because I think okay. those are two those are two very different critiques. Um, right. One of them, I think, is actually a fairly long-standing critique, and one's a new one, right? So so I think there are plenty of folks who have for a long time been very wary of any attempt 
to summarize the Supreme Court's work in a term by looking at the, the, the merits docket, um, not to the exclusion of the shadow docket, but just you know by that numbers tell the story, right? That all cases are equal. Um, and I think one of the, you know, starting with that one, Amy, I think one of the places where I at least think that's especially become more and more salient is as the merits docket has shrunk. Um, right, that you know the the court heard what I think the there were fifty six signed opinions and argued cases this term. That's the second lowest total since the Civil War. Right, eclipsed only by last term. Um, and so when you get these grandiose claims in some of the hot takes um, about the Supreme Court term, that oh hey they only divided in seven of fifty six cases, um, or there's this one preposterous graphic in um, the New York Times that looked only at non-unanimous opinions in which the three Democratic appointees were in the majority, um, right, of which I think there were 13, um, right? It's like, th these are weird ways to slice a court where, Amy, I think folks who follow it carefully, folks who practice before it know that, like, there are cases that just don't have the same interests, right? There are, there are decisions that just don't have the same consequences. So that's, I think, that's the first critique. Um, I'm, I'm, I think, much more closely associated with the second, um, which is that- Can I just stop you and say, you yeah. know who likes the first um, statistic to talk, to talk about, like, how often the court is unanimous? Chief Justice the, Roberts, the justices, exactly. Right. How right. We're, we're unanimous 46% of the time. We're, we're right. just talking it along. Right. And, 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 and just, and, but so, so you mentioned Fulton, which I think is a great illustration of how, right. You know, in a unanimous decision, you get some pretty significant disagreements. Um, but also it's already such a self-selective data set because if the court's overall docket includes all of the cases they're not taken, right. In a world in which the Supreme court right. has virtually plenary control over its docket, which is the world we've had since 1988, you know, for the justices to say, look at how often we're unanimous in cases we decided to take, um, right, is a little self-serving. Um, but but that's that critique is not new. I mean, I think that critique is is a standard critique about sort of not quantifying the work of the court. Mine is a little bit more new. I don't want to say nuanced. It's a little bit more nerdy, which is if we're gonna quantify the work of the court, let's at least quantify as much of the work of the court as we're interested in. And so, you know, the, 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 the great sort of contrast for me is to take two of the California COVID cases. Um, there's one called South Bay and there's one called Tandon versus Newsom. Um, South Bay, right, comes to the court well, it had come to the court already last May, but this term it came to the court in February, and the court issued an emergency writ of injunction um, over three very sharp dissents, and with some concurring opinions, but no majority opinion, right? And then Tandon, the court issues another emergency writ of injunction. These are both shadow docket rulings, this time over four dissents, right? This time with a short per curiam opinion. So, SCOTUS blogs statistics, Harvard Law Review's statistics, and even the Supreme Court's webpage count Tandon and don't count South Bay, right? And the question to me is, why is that such an important distinction? They're both emergency injunctions blocking a state's you know, COVID restrictions. The Supreme Court relies on both as precedential, right? There are orders after both of them sending other cases back in light of those two decisions. The justices are voting the same way, they're dividing the same way. And so my critique is, why would we count the one that gets a four page majority opinion, but not the one that doesn't just because the justices in the majority declined to write? It's that distinction, right, that I'm sort of grappling with. Okay, I hear you on that. And I think that's a, a valid criticism. 
I guess what I'm wondering is, you know, and, and you said it yourself at the outset, that there are massive parts of the shadow docket that are entirely anodyne. You know, this week we had two different requests for emergency relief. We had one from a guy who says he's stuck at the villages in Florida and wants to go to Germany and wanted Justice Thomas to waive the federal mask mandate. And Justice Thomas denied that one without referring it to the full court. And then we had another one from someone who'd been found incompetent to stand trial. They were going to put her in uh, into custody so they can treat her and make her competent for trial. Justice Kagan denied that one without referring it to the full court. Like, I guess the question is, you know, if we're getting hundreds of emergency applications and, and you know, requests for extensions and things like that, like, how do we how do we separate the the wheat from the chaff? It, yeah, it, it's the right question, Amy. And I I can't confess to have all the answers. I think the only thing I can claim is that I've probably thought about this more than is you know defensible by any rational human being. Um, so <laughs> I, I think there are I think there are six different ways to think okay. about how we count the shadow docket. Because we want to try and do, like uh, this is actually like uh, legitimately like we want to try and do a better job. No, no. I mean, I, I, we're all in this together, right? Like, no exactly. one is right. No one is. No one is. No one is trying to say this is not a thing. The question is, what is the thing? Um, so there are six. There are six possibilities, and I want to sort of tick them all off, and then walk through why I think most of them don't work. Um, so the first is count every single one, um, and and that is the sort of easiest to defend and the hardest to do. Right, because as you say, the noise is just going to completely overwhelm the signal um, in that data set. Right, I just I don't think we care about uh, extensions of applications of time within which to file your merits brief. Like I just you know that does doesn't keep me up at night. Um, the second possibility is to count only those orders from which at least one justice publicly notes a dissent. Um, and right there, that's cutting a huge chunk right off of that data set on the theory that. If you just focus on orders with at least one public dissent, that at least gets us those cases where someone thought enough to care. Um, the problem with that is that sometimes you might have a unanimous order that's really important, right? And so, you know, the fact that there's no dissent might not justify excluding it from the data set. Um, the third is to go broader and do those with any writing, including concurrences. Um, right, that's a slightly better approach to me than just public dissents, but it still runs the risk that you're going to um, cut out really important orders where there is unanimity. So let me just give you one example of that, right? Um, before the Texas versus Pennsylvania Ken Paxton affair, right, the most important of the post-election emergency applications to get to the court was Congressman Mike Kelly's application for a stay of, I think it was the Third Circuit's decision, right, in one of the Pennsylvania cases. The court denied that without anyone expressing a vote. Um, I would think that's a pretty big deal, right? But the first three of these buckets wouldn't include that in the data set. Um, the fourth possibility, and this is the one that I have gravitated toward the most, um, is to count every single one of a particular type of application. Um, and so that is to say, no, we don't care about motions for extensions of time. No, we don't care about applicate, you know, I mean, like to sort of really focus on the kinds of relief on the shadow docket that we're interested in. And so this to me would include applications to grant or vacate a stay, applications to grant or vacate an injunction, and a few other forms of emergency relief, Amy, that used to be much more common, but that have gone by the wayside. So applications to grant bail, 
or vacate a lower court grant of bail, applications to be released from detention or vacate a lower court's release order. Like those were much more common before the Bail Reform Act of 1984. They're still theoretically within the court's rules. So maybe we should still track them, but they don't happen very often. Um, if you, if you track particular types, you're still going to have a lot of noise, right? So you mentioned the two applications this week that were both denied in chambers. You know, those are applications for states, um, right? Or at least one of them was an application for an injunction. Some sort of emergency relief, yeah. Right. And so, you know, I think it, it's going to be hard to justify not counting those in the denominator, even if we might look at either those or some other application and say, this is just silly. This is almost frivolous. Um, the fifth possibility is to count only those shadow docket rulings that produce particular results, um, which I think is the best way of sharpening and tightening the denominator, but raises concerns again that we're excluding important cases. So an example here, um, would we only count orders granting stays as opposed to denying applications for stays? Um, most recently, right, the court had this request to lift the district court stay of the ruling blocking the CDC's eviction moratorium, um, where the court denied the application to vacate the stay, five to four. Um, I would think that ought to count. I would think that ought to be part of the data set. Exactly, that was a pretty interesting uh, vote. Right, and so that, and so then the sixth, the sixth, and the last one, and and with and forgive me for a moment because I'm gonna be a little critical of SCOTUS blog and HLR. What SCOTUS blog and HLR currently count is just those that produce majority opinions. Um, and I think it's hopefully it's clear from this conversation why that's not enough. Um, and so of those six, I gravitate toward the fourth. I gravitate toward, you know, smart people who are smarter than me thinking about which kinds of applications we actually care about and then tracking all of them. Um, and so, you know, applications for stays or vacate stays, applications for injunctions or vacate injunctions, maybe a couple of others, right? Not perhaps cert, right? Maybe we're not interested in denials of cert that produce opinions, um, at least as part of the shadow docket story. So, you know, that to me, Amy, is where the conversation. Those are less, slightly less shadowy, at least. Well, they're, they're less shadowy. And I think from enough, they're less shadowy, they're less new, right? We've had dissents from denials of cert for as long as we've had cert. Um, and I also think they're doing a different thing, right? Mm -hmm. Where, you know, the cert, granting or denying cert is to me a different phenomenon from using other forms of orders to affect either individual cases or, or nationwide policy, right? Um, orders that just shape the court's docket, I think are less are of less interest to me in this story. So, you know, this is my case for why I think the best way to slice this apple is to think about exactly which kinds of applications we're most interested in. The problem there is that I can imagine a universe where different people will answer that question differently. Um, and say, well, I am interested in, in denials of cert, or I'm interested in GVRs, right? Orders that grant, vacate, and remand summarily. Um, and so I think four is to me the most sensible one, but it also requires a fair amount of consensus about which order should and should not count. What about a, a scenario in which you count, you know, you wouldn't count emergency applications that don't get referred to the full court? Yeah, I mean, that could work too. Um, the tricky part there is it will sometimes, I mean, I guess those would be any application, so let me back up a second. There are, there are some applications that, are, that, that only the full court can act on, right? Stays are not them, um, injunctions are not them. But I think, gosh, I have to go back and look. There, there are some applications that automatically go to the full court and so always show up in the orders list that are pretty anodyne. Um, right, like a, like a motion to file a, um, a brief under seal 
right? I think ah. doesn't go to a circuit justice. It goes to the full court. Um, now, in I mean, we know in practice that that's not something, it's not like they're sitting around at conference debating whether John Smith gets to file his cert petition under seal. But, you know, I, I worry about sort of, that's still going to be a very noisy data set. Sure. I think, and I think it also, I mean, to my mind, this is sort of getting a bit really far into the weeds. I actually think one of the problems with the court shadow docket is the sort of automatic referrals to the full court of anything that's remotely contentious. In the old days, that wasn't how the court did it. In the old days, the justices, especially during the summer, um, would decide even contentious ones by themselves. Because it was like too much trouble, too too difficult, I imagine, to try and find, track down, you know, Justice Douglas is out in the woods somewhere, you know, somebody's in Europe. There's well, no not only was it too difficult, Amy, but until at least 1990, um, at least technically the court didn't have the power to do it, right? So one of the, one of the, one of the awkwardnesses here is that um, the court, when it recessed for the summer, it actually used to adjourn, where the court's term ended um, when the court rose for the summer. And so like the, the Cambodia bombing dispute in 1973, part of why Marshall and Douglas end up, you know, butting heads against each other the way they did is because short of calling a special term, something the court had only done five times, right, in the 20th century, there was no mechanism for the full court to meet and to do anything in, 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 as a quorum. Um, right while they were adjourned. This changes in a very subtle shift to the court's rules in 1990, where the court shifts to a continuous term. That's why today we say that the October 20 term doesn't end until the, the next one begins, right? But there used to be a gap, which is part of why there was this longstanding practice of having circuit justices do so much of this. So that's a really long answer to the question, but I think, you know, I'd be wary of a, of a sort of divide that focuses on whether the application is referred or not, because I think you will miss a couple of interesting ones, and you'll include a lot of noise. Interesting, interesting. All right, so last question. This has been fascinating. Sort of looking ahead, you know, the, the shadow docket, it, it seems like maybe it has slowed down a little bit with the Biden administration. Uh, I guess, what do you expect over the next couple of years? in terms of the shadow docket? Do you think that the pace that the shadow docket will continue? Perhaps, you know, it will be a more active shadow docket than it was before the Trump administration because people now realize that it's there and it's something that they can use, but not as active as it was in the sort of 2017 to 2020 stretch? I think that's probably right. I think that's probably the the, the most likely scenario. Um, I just I, I would not leave out of this story the justices themselves, um, right? Because I think one of the things that we've seen on the shadow docket in the last couple of years is the justices, to my mind at least, granting relief in circumstances in which their own rules and at least in one case the relevant statute um, specifically did not allow it. And so I think you know we have seen a bit of a softening of the justice's own standards for granting emergency relief, which whether that's cause or effect, Amy, I think means, yes, there will be more of these going forward relative to the before times, um, right? Relative to before 2017. I don't think we will see quite the volume that we've seen over the last couple of years because you know we had this remarkable confluence of emergency provoking events, right? And I don't mean the Trump administration in the abstract, but COVID, the 2020 election, um, the reinstitution of the federal death penalty, right? Those three things by themselves were responsible for a pretty hefty chunk 
of at least the numbers, the volume on the shadow docket in the last couple of years. Um, so I, I think we'll see more relative to the old, old days. Um, I think we'll be not quite, I, we may have already passed the high water mark, but of course, you know. God willing. <laughs> Well, so, I mean, there is, you know, the other part of the story is the challenges it creates for people whose job it is to cover the court and explain the court, right? Because the more the court departs from normal order, the hard, when the court keeps handing down major rulings at 11.34 p.m. on a Friday night, you know, that's, I, I know that the, the world is not sort of feeling bad for the Supreme Court press court, but it does create- Nor should they, but- you know, I, I think I feel like we're just we're not at our best at the at eleven thirty four either. And neither are and neither are the justices. Um, you know, that's but anyway, so you the, said that, not me. I know. Um <laughs> You know, this is this might explain my track record in the Supreme Court. So the um I, I think what we're looking at though, the, the shift is gonna be, you know. It won't be the Biden administration, right, that is repeatedly asking the justices for emergency relief like the Trump administration did. It will be the Biden administration resisting efforts by private parties. So, right, to me, the most likely analogy is the Clean Power Plan. Um, perhaps the most important shadow docket ruling of the Obama administration was when the justices granted um, a couple of states and some private parties applications for a stay of the D.C. Circuit's decision in the Clean Power Plan case, where the Obama administration was the respondent. So I think we're in for more of those. I mean, I think the eviction moratorium came very close to that. Mm -hmm. um, and even those decisions, Amy, I think are going to be qualitatively different than what we saw in the shadow docket before 2015, 2016, 2017. But in absolute terms, it's hard to imagine it's going to be this busy consistently going forward, um, because I think it's not sustainable. It is, yeah. All right. Steve Vladek, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun and very thank interesting. You. My pleasure. That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. Thanks for joining us. And thanks to our production team, Katie Barlow, Angie Goh, Cal Goldie, and James Ramoser.